tonight we are wrapping up our uh, our series, Pray Like Jesus, as we um, close out uh, this session on the Lord's Prayer. Um, next week, I want to encourage you, actually, this is my last time here on Wednesday uh, for the rest of the year. Uh, Pastor is going to be here on Wednesdays, and um, it's so interesting. Pastor Justin and I were talking earlier um, Justin did a series back in August revolving around prayer. Uh, I felt led of the Spirit to do this series based on prayer. Uh, Pastor, beginning next week, will take off on a series revolving around prayer. And so um, we're not really sure what the Lord's doing, but he's trying to teach us something about prayer. And so uh, Pastor is going to um, give us some uh, links with the prophetic and prayer. So it's going to be really incredible. We encourage you to be here, and um, I'm sure it's going to be very, very good. Uh, Tonight, we are wrapping up the series, and um, I actually want to do something very, very different to begin with. And I'm just going to ask you to kind of stay with me because I'm going somewhere. There's meaning behind this. Um, But tonight, what I want to do, I want to play a song for you, or just a a short snippet of a song here. And as you listen to the song, I want you to think to yourself, what does this remind me of? What kind of memories does it bring? And let me just say this before we play the song. um, I understand that we have a vast sampling of every generation represented here tonight, okay? So what it means to one segment, it is going to mean something very different to another, okay? But again, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, So if you guys will, about the first half a minute or more of that song. There was only a certain segment that started laughing at There's something happening here what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop children What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Okay I want you to think to yourself what memories flood my mind? Because that song was composed and, uh, and sung in the 1960s. So for a person like me, I was born in 1980, okay? What this song reminds me of is Forrest Gump. That's what it reminds me of. Because as soon as Forrest comes back from the Vietnam War, this song is played throughout the movie, right? And so my memories go back to Forrest Gump, and I begin to think about um, the Vietnam War and everything kind of in that era. And what's interesting is this, is that if you study especially American history, but definitely world history, but especially American history, what you're going to find is that there are certain songs or speeches or poems that are written that are written for very specific defining moments in different cultures. So if you don't know what this song is about, this song was written in the 1960s, and basically what had happened is that there were some young people in Southern California in one particular city, and they were just being out late, not really doing anything destructive. They were just kind of being a nuisance by being out late and everything, and so the local government decided that they wanted to enforce a curfew. And so these gentlemen decided that they were going to write this song 
But what is important to understand is this, is that it was written in the 1960s, and in the 60s, there was all this type of cultural social revolution that was happening, right? All of this upheaval, and even the lyrics of the song, what does it say? Listen to what's going on and watch what's going on because things are changing, right? In the 1960s, you can see again and again, again, way before that in American history. I mean, you can go outside of American history and see, you know, speeches that were given by um, Socrates and Napoleon and different people at pivotal points in their culture. But in American culture, the same is true. So we have the speech at Gettysburg. We have the Star Spangled Banner uh, after the War of 1812. Um, more recently, like I said, in the 1960s and the 70s, um, you had a lot of different things that transpired there. You have Martin Luther King uh, Jr. in the early 1960s. He wrote and delivered his speech called I Have a Dream. It was a pivotal moment. It was a revolutionary moment in American history and especially with the civil rights movement. Um, many of you will remember, uh, again, in the 60s, a lady by the name of Aretha Franklin, right? And she wrote a song called Respect, right? You know that song. It's going off in your head right now, okay? And the song Respect, if you remember, it was written and delivered around the time of the women's rights the women's rights movement in America. And basically in the song, she's saying, look, baby, I'm not going to do you bad, but don't do me bad. Give me some respect, you know? And so it was this era of time where there was so much going on culturally. It was very pivotal, a revolutionary moment. And it's important to understand that in so many cultures, we see this type of thing where a speech or a poem or a song is given that is attached to a pivotal moment. And the reason it's given in that moment is so that it, it transcends just that moment. It lives beyond its years, if that makes sense. And so when we approach the Lord's Prayer, again, for the last time for this series, um, tonight, this is exactly what is transpiring in Jesus's mind. The Lord's Prayer is a revolutionary prayer. You've got to understand that, that culturally, he was speaking to not only Jewish people, but he was speaking to Gentile people. And in their cultures, a personal, intimate, involved relationship with the God of heaven, the creator God, was, was not something that was, that was commonly explored. There was this idea that God was kind of uh, stoic and he was away. Maybe he cared for the people of Israel, but he cared for them as a nation, not necessarily as individual people. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he gives this sermon, this incredible sermon on the mount, one of the greatest speeches or sermons that have ever been given. And in the midst of this, he talks to the people and he tells them how they can connect with their God in heaven. And what Jesus is ultimately saying He's saying that the way that you prayed in Matthew chapter 5 is about to fundamentally and drastically change from the way that you pray by the time we get to Matthew chapter 7. He is issuing a declaration that in this religious culture, everything is about to be turned upside down and on its head. And thank God that he did, because now we have this openness with our Father in heaven. And so as he teaches them to pray... Um, we'll recite it again. Uh, this is what he says. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And Lord, help those people. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now tonight what we're going to do is we're going to really hunker down and we're going to focus on this area where the Lord instructs us uh, to pray for deliverance from not only temptation but from evil. Before we get there though, I want to just jump back a little bit and and take a step back and and talk a little bit about the, the Lord's prayer as a whole here tonight. The very first week that we were together, um, I mentioned to you that uh, there are very different perspectives how people view the Lord's Prayer. There are some people that view the Lord's Prayer um, as what uh, we would call, there are some people that, that view it as a model for prayer, and there are other people that view it as the only model for prayer. So there are some that, that are leaning more to the extreme side, and they say, well, Jesus said, when you pray, you need to pray this way. And so this is, they are kind of boxed in only to what Jesus um, instructed them to pray. And I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I don't believe Jesus is trying to be restrictive with our prayer life. Um, I think what Jesus is really trying to communicate is that there are some very key areas in the Lord's Prayer, and you need to pay attention to these. Now, I believe that we should recite the Lord's Prayer. I do think he issues that charge to us that we should, but I don't think he's boxing us in just to the Lord's Prayer, okay? And so those who are not so extreme may view the Lord's Prayer as something that, you know, they don't recite or pray every day. Um, But then there are some that may say, well, yeah, I'm making it a a mantra in my life. I want to pray the Lord's Prayer. I want to connect with the Lord in this way. And that's, that's totally fine. Um, I read, uh, one author uh, I read, he said that he made it a goal for his life, that he would pray the Lord's Prayer five times every day. And so he would recite the prayer as he woke up in the morning, uh, at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then finally, as he laid down to go to sleep at night, he would recite the Lord's Prayer again. Uh, there are other people that, uh, you know, they're a little more selective in how they use the Lord's Prayer. Um, you know, like during the pandemic, there are people that they may not recite the Lord's Prayer as a whole, but in the midst of this, as they pray for people and against this virus, they may say, Lord, deliver us from evil. Does that make sense? So, so they can kind of compartmentalize. And let me just say this. I think that the Lord is fine with anything that we want to pray, okay, as far as the Lord's prayer goes. I do not think that he is trying to limit us or restrict us to just praying these things. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, yesterday, um, my, uh, my wife and I, we, we try to have a date night every week, and we were out, and we were driving, talking about different things. And we have, we had something happen in our house and we have to have it repaired. And, um, my wife has like a little side job that she does at home part-time and everything. And, uh, last night we were driving and she said, man, I hate that, you know, we have this issue come up, you know, my, my entire paycheck is going to have to go towards, towards fixing this house repair. And I, I just thought about it in the moment, not being super spiritual or anything like that. Um, but I said, yeah, but this is the Lord providing our daily bread. You know what I'm saying? So, so like there's this mindset that I'm incorporating what Christ is instructing us to pray is applicable to our lives. And so um, there are a lot of different ways that we can do it. As I told you in the very first week, uh, for years, I used um, this prayer as a template for my prayer life, the entire prayer. And so just really quickly, it's in your notes. I just want to run, I, I'm going to take like two minutes to do this. 
But in your notes, you'll see where I've kind of broken the, the prayer down into five or six different stanzas. And all I want to do is just share with you how I use this prayer for a few years in order to, like I said, as a template for prayer, okay? So what, what I used to be um, in, in the mode of doing is every time I would come into the presence of the Lord, um, I would begin, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And what I would do from that moment is I would take the next little while, whether it, it depends on the day, how much time I had scheduled for prayer or whatever, but... I may take 5, 10, 15 minutes, and I would just sit in the presence of the Lord. I would bestow honor on him. I may listen to worship music. I would give thanksgiving. Um, I would, I would you know, review the blessing that God has poured in my life, and I would just thank him that he is my Father in heaven, and I would connect with him in that way for the first uh, portion of the prayer. The second thing I would do when I moved from that moment, I would pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And in this moment, all I'm doing, I'm, I'm bringing my spirit into submission to the sovereignty of God, right? So I'm saying, Father, regardless of my thoughts and regardless of my will, I'm asking you to come and to realign me according to your will, right? So if there is like a blueprint of God's will in heaven, I'm asking that blueprint to lay over my life and to kind of straighten me out and to realign me. And so um, I would spend time there. Uh, then I would move on to give us this day our daily bread. Um, a few weeks ago, or maybe two weeks ago, we, I, I walked you through, you know, how I would break down the days and different things I would pray for every single day. And obviously that's to everyone's own discretion, um, however you want to do that. Following that, the prayer for needs, I would move on to and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. This is what we spoke about last week. I'm reviewing my soul. I'm, I'm saying, Father, search me, try me, point out any wicked way within me, reveal this to me. And when he does, I'm repentant. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm verbally confessing my sin. If I need to make something right with somebody, Lord willing, following this time in prayer, I'm going to make things right with them. At the same time, I'm, I'm reviewing, uh, do, is there anyone that I need to forgive? Or like, I'm seeking the forgiveness of the Father, but is there anybody that I need to forgive? Lord, show me, search my heart, just cut me open and show me what's there. And then finally, I would end with lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is what we're going to focus on tonight. And then finally, I would just kind of book in my prayer with for thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. So in the first part of the prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's an act of submission and worship to our Father. And then on the back end, I'm, I'm reminding, I'm not reminding the Father, I'm reminding myself that his is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And what that does is that gives me a reminder of the confidence that I have that my prayers are heard from my Father in heaven. Okay? So that's just kind of a template. And so um, I understand that you're probably... Most of you are probably far more mature and advanced than to need somebody to give you a template for prayer, but you never know. If you want to change it up sometime, this is a great way that you can do it. Tonight, what we want to do is I want to focus on the stanza where Jesus instructs us that we should pray that the Lord would lead us not into temptation. Now, before we even get into that, let me, let me just say this. I realize that on a Wednesday night, the vast majority of the people that are here at a Bible study are seasoned and mature Christians. I understand that. 
and to come in and have a discussion about temptation can maybe seem a little elementary or a little surface or something to that effect. But the reality is this, this is one thing I've learned. I've been a Christian for a little over 20 years, and this is one thing I've learned, that you never outgrow the fight against temptation. You never outgrow it. Um, you're just because things change in your chemical or your physical body or your mental capacity, you, you, you have never outgrown this war that we have against uh, things that are not flesh and blood. And so I just want to remind us of that tonight um, as we jump in. Before we speak specifically to temptation, I know that oftentimes there can be some confusion about what temptation is or where temptation comes from. And so what I want to do first is I want to talk to you about the differences between trials testing and temptations. Sometimes uh, we can view these as synonymous terms. They're just interchangeable and, you know, we say I'm going through a test, but it really means a trial or whatever. And the reality is this, they are not interchangeable terms. They are all distinctly different and they carry different meanings. And so it's important for us to understand those because God sends some of these to us and God does not send some of these things to us. And so we need to make sure that we understand what God is sending, and then just what God is allowing. And to begin with, I want to talk to you for a moment about trials. Now, trials are meant by God to bring out the best within us. Trials that we go through are meant to bring out the best within us. You remember James, the brother of Jesus. What does he say? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So what James is saying, he's saying, listen, you're going to face trials of various kinds, but let them have their way. Let them work themselves out in your lives because as you do that, you will be more mature in the Lord. You will be more complete in the Lord. You will be more well-rounded in the Lord. And so allow God to use these trials to shape and to mold you, right? The apostle Peter reminds us of this. He says, the trials that you face will show that your faith is genuine. So in a sense, God is allowing trials or using trials to not only perfect us, but it's also to prove that our faith is really in the Lord Jesus and not only in ourselves. The tricky part is this, is that a trial may be from the hand of the Lord, but a trial may not be from the hand of the Lord. Right? And sometimes it's difficult to discern um, which it is, but I would just simply say this. It's far easier if we just not worry about if God is sending this or if the enemy is sending this and just realize that God has allowed this and we just need to let the trial you know, do its work in us in purifying us. We see, um, we see Paul as he is speaking about the thorn in his flesh. Now, he identifies the thorn in his flesh as a messenger from Satan. Okay, so we realize that this trial that Paul's going through, this is not from the hand of the Lord, right? This is a messenger from Satan. But what we see in the same text is that the Lord refusing to remove the trial from Paul, right? So what is God doing? He's not causing the trial, but he's allowing the trial. 
because he knows that ultimately this is going to work out for Paul's benefit and for his maturing. And so for us, when we walk through difficulty, whether it be um, sickness or some Un, un, you know, undeserved financial struggle or maybe, you know, marital relationships, you know, all go through ups and downs, whatever the case may be, when we go through difficulties, it's important to remember that although God may not have caused this to happen, God has allowed this to happen and we need to let this work itself out and we need to endure through this trial. Um, Joni Erickson Tadada, uh, she said that she's a quadriplegic. I mean, she, she is paralyzed from the neck down, but she is an incredible woman of God. She's an author. And talking about her experience going through a lifelong trial, literally a lifelong trial of being a paraplegic, this is what she wrote. She said, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows things into our lives that he hates because he wants to produce something in us which he loves, right? And the great, the, the incredible thing about the Father is, is this, is that he knows exactly how much pressure he can allow to come into your life and to my life so that we don't crumble into pieces, a few years ago, I was um, uh, in our youth ministry here, and I was going to preach a sermon uh, on the potter's hand, the potter's will. You know, the father is the potter and we are the clay. And so um, I asked our team to find me a pottery will, right? I want to I I mold a pot on stage or something like that. I didn't know what I was doing. And so they brought it in. And so a few hours beforehand, um, I got up on stage and I was trying to practice and, and I was shocked by two things. Number one, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed pottery, all right? It was really weird. I never thought I would enjoy pottery, but it was like, it, it was therapeutic for me or whatever reason. The second thing that really surprised me was how fragile the clay was. It really surprised me how fragile the clay was. And as I began to work and to really begin to understand how to shape and to mold something, one of the things that stuck out to me more, probably more than anything else was the reality that if I applied too much pressure, it would crush what I was trying to create, right? But if I didn't apply enough pressure, it would destroy in another way what I was trying to create, right? So, so the clay would just kind of unfold or envelop on itself. And so what I learned is that there is a tension between how much pressure I need to apply to make this into what I want it to be and how much I do not need to pressure it. And so there was this tension here. And the incredible thing about this is that God calls himself the potter and he calls us the clay. And as he is not only the potter, but as he is our father, he knows how much pressure we can handle and how much is too much. And so it is important for us to remember and to keep in perspective that as we go through and process through difficulties, that the Father in heaven has allowed these things. These have filtered through his hands, and he has allowed these for a purpose. And according to Romans 8.28, we know that that purpose is for our betterment, okay? So trials are meant to bring out the very best in us. Number two, tests are meant to prove us, okay? 
tests are an opportunity for us to obey the Lord, right? One of the most profound and, and shocking statements in all of the Bible is found in Genesis 22 when the Bible simply says, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. It wasn't nuanced with all of these, well, you know, and kind of describing all the, what it could mean this. No, it's very, very simple. God tested Abraham. And the reality is this, is that when God tested Abraham, it wasn't God just kind of throwing his hands up and saying, well, Abraham, you know, (laughs) hey, buddy, I I hope you can do this for me. I hope that you walk in obedience. This isn't some open theism where God doesn't know the future or God doesn't know what's going to transpire. God tested Abraham, not for God's sake, but for Abraham's sake. Abraham did not need more faith in the Lord. I mean, he is the father of our faith. He had faith in God. But the testing of Abraham is so that Abraham would have faith in Abraham. So that Abraham would realize his loyalties to the Lord so that the very best in him. And the reality is this, when it comes to trials and tests, we don't want it, right? Like, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I hate it. I don't like them. They, in the moment especially, very annoying, okay, very frustrating, very, you know, inflicting on my plan for my life. We don't want trials and tests, but we desperately, desperately need trials and tests because without them, we will never become the fullness of what God has called us to be and destined for us. And so as these tests for obedience come, as the difficulties of life through trials come, we have to discipline ourselves to not cave into these things, but to just understand that they are filtered through the Father's hands, that, that he has allowed these things, and we must trust him to create in us what he needs to create in us. So that's the difference between testings and trials. They are, they are both very, very similar, but they are different, okay? Tonight, what I want to focus most of our time on is temptations. Temptations are vastly different than trials and tests because temptations always come from hell. There has never been a time when temptation has come from heaven. Temptation always originates in hell. God always tests us. The enemy is never testing us for obedience. God is always the one who tests us. The devil never tests us. On the other hand, God never tempts us. Only the enemy tempts us. This is what James says again. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And so we have to remember that as we are tempted, temptation is meant to bring out the very worst in us. They are meant to trip us up. They are are meant for us to fall. And so what we have to do is we have to kind of get our minds around what temptations are and how to overcome these things. So the first thing when we talk about um, understanding temptation, the first thing that's important to remember is that temptation is a trap. Temptation is a trap. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and as he was talking through some of these things for the people, this is what he would say. He would say, we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. He uses the word devices or schemes or strategies. 
And what he is saying is that the enemy has a strategy against you and against me, and we cannot afford to be ignorant of those strategies. We must be well aware so that we can combat them in the proper way. Now, the reality is this. At the end of the day, every temptation at its core is the same. It's, it's sin, right? That's, that's, that's what it is. It's just, like, uh, it's just like when you go fishing, right? Uh, there is always a lure, and that lure always looks really good, but hidden within the lure is what? It's a hook, right? And every time that we are tempted, the same thing is always, always true, right? Whatever we are tempted with always looks really good from the outside, it always looks good in our imagination. How we envision something playing out always looks brilliant, that we can get away with it, that it's going to fulfill every need and appetite that we have. The reality is, is that within that, when we finally take the bite, we're hooked, right? It, it hooks us, and the enemy has his way with us. Um, just like Allure, though, uh, the reality is that the enemy is wise enough to know us, to know that he doesn't have to pull the hook the first time that we nibble on it. Okay, follow me here. My dad is an avid gamesman. I mean, avid gamesman. He's hunted all over the country and killed all kind of things and has all kind of trophies, and it's amazing. I love to eat the food, okay? Um, but his truest passion is fishing. He loves all kind of fishing, but he loves largemouth bass fishing, right? And what you will find with largemouth bass is that as you're fishing, you will feel the fish strike the bait multiple times as a nibble. He'll just strike, and then he'll go, she'll go away, and then she'll come back, and she'll strike, and she'll go away. But at a certain point, her appetite always gets the best of her. And at a certain point, the nibbles stop being nibbles, and they turn into all-out biting, Right? And she grabs the hook, and it's at that moment when she grabs the hook that what happens? Throws it up, and he's got her, right? Listen to me. In the very same way, and you know this, in the very same way, when we are tempted so many times, we kind of take a nibble on the thing that's tempting us, right? We're not, we're not full in. We're not all in. We just kind of nibble a little bit, Right? And this is what ultimately happens when we end up falling in, into temptation, is that we get so accustomed to nibbling at that thing and not getting caught. Nibbling in that thing and nobody finds out. Nibbling in that thing and, and, and we're fine. Everything that I, bad that I thought would happen didn't happen. But ultimately, when our appetites overcome us and we go headlong into the bait, we're going to get hooked, and it's going to be a tremendous destruction for all of us, okay? And so let me just remind us of, of this. There is a very real reality. Okay, Satan, our enemy, is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. He's not at every place at every time. But I think sometimes as Christian believers— we have a tendency to underestimate the authority that God has allowed him to have. And so sometimes, uh, and I'll, I'll give you a great example, uh, Michael the archangel, okay, as, as powerful as Michael the archangel is, right, when it comes to the body of Moses as he dies on top of the mountain, Moses goes to bury the body, or excuse me, Michael goes to bury the body of Moses, 
But Jude tells us that Satan contends with the archangel Michael. And Michael, in his wisdom, as powerful as Michael is, what does Michael do? He doesn't get into a knockdown drag out with Lucifer. He doesn't start, you know, rebuking Lucifer to his face. No, this is what he says. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Listen to me. I believe that we have authority in the spiritual realm. Please do not misunderstand me. But we've got to understand that we are dealing with supernatural powers that go far beyond our understanding of their capabilities. We should not be fearful. We, have, we are victory. Okay, we have victory. We are victorious. We, we should not be afraid or fearful on any stretch of what he can do. But we need to understand that he can do some things. And we need to respect the fact that God has allowed him to do some of these things. Um, C.S. Lewis, my favorite, as you know, um, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And if you're not familiar with this book, basically this is it's a fictional book. Um, but what it is, is it is a correspondence of two demons talking back and forth to each other in written form. And what they are talking about is they are talking about strategies to attack a specific human being. The whole book, every chapter, it is this, this hierarchy demon that is communicating with um, this, this other demon, and they are talking about strategies and weaknesses and vulnerabilities that this young man may have, and they go and they strike him in different ways to see which will be able to take him down, okay? Now, again, that is fictional, okay? But let me say this. I do believe that the enemy is watchful of our lifestyles. The demonic hordes are intentional about watching and testing our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. When Jesus was tested in the wilderness, if you remember in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Jesus is tested in the wilderness. The Bible says this. The Bible says that he was in the wilderness and he was fasting for 40 days. And this is what I love sometimes when scripture is just so like matter of fact, and the Bible says he was, he was fasting for 40 days and he was hungry, right? It's like, oh, oh, wow, that's, you know, okay, but, but follow me. The reason it's so important that we understand that he was hungry, we're reminded that he was hungry is because the very first temptation that Lucifer brings to Jesus is what? Will you turn these stones into bread? The enemy, observing Jesus' life and what was going on in that moment, realized that Jesus' greatest vulnerability in that moment was hunger. And he was hungry. And the enemy knew that, and so that was the first point of attack for him. And so I would just remind us not to be surprised when it seems like temptation rears its head at the most opportune moments for the enemy. It is one of these things where, um, you know, most people would never be tempted to do some of the things that we are tempted to do if they happen right now in the middle of service, right? If somebody texted you a photo that was a person who was not wearing clothes in this moment, you would probably like throw your phone against the wall and rebuke, you know, the the picture and everything like that. But give it about two o'clock in the morning when you're tired and you're lonely or you just had an argument with your spouse and something like that happens and tell me you're not more vulnerable 
in that moment. No. The enemy, he's not, he's not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. But he is a knowing being. And there is evidence that he studies our lives. The Bible says in um, uh, the book of Genesis in the very beginning that the serpent was more crafty. One translation says more cunning than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so it's important for us to understand that every temptation is a trap for us. There is never going to be a temptation that if we fall into it, that we are going to enjoy the benefits or the reward of it. It's always a trap. There's always, there's always a price to pay for it. The second thing we need to understand about temptation is that temptation is a force. So sin or temptation, it is a choice for us. We choose whether we will indulge or we choose discipline, right? But the reality is, is that it's not just a choice that we make. It is a force to be dealt with. It is, it is a power. Um, again, in, in Genesis 4, uh, this is what the writer says. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master over it. And so what it's saying is saying that there are elemental forces that are out there, and they are intentionally coming after you. Okay, now the book of James helps us understand when it comes to temptations that sometimes temptations are born from within us, right? They begin in our desires. They begin in our, our brokenness of our human state. Sometimes temptations come from the outside. And so there's internal temptation, right? Or what I call sometimes it's the inner me that is dealing with temptation, but sometimes it's the enemy that is dealing temptation. And we got to discern, is this the inner me? Or is this the enemy, right? And so it's important to understand that it's a, it's a force that we're dealing with, and we cannot underestimate the force that we're dealing with, but we also can't overestimate ourselves. Listen to what Lewis, again, listen to what Lewis says about temptation. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And so it is very much one of those things that we have to deal with and we, we have to be very aware of. This is what I love about Jesus' brutal honesty. In the midst of this beautiful prayer, he is, he is giving honor and homage to the, to the Father in heaven. And he's dealing out forgiveness and the forgiveness of sin and provision for our souls and Jesus then just kind of makes a pivot and he says, oh, and by the way, if you do all this, just understand it's going to be difficult along the way, right? It's just this brutal honesty where he says, as you live out this life that I'm instructing you and as you live out what I'm, I'm teaching you to pray, you've also got to understand that there are going to be temptations that come your way. And I don't want you to be unaware of those temptations. I want you to be prepared and prayerful for those temptations. And so understanding temptations is, is very, very important. Are you guys with me? Y'all good? Okay, very good. Number something, I don't know. <laughs> Overcoming temptations. Overcoming temptations. Primarily, primarily in very big, broad categories, there are usually three things that happen when it comes to temptation. Okay? Um, the first one is this is that we fight temptation, okay? This should, this should always, you know, be somewhere in the mix here. 
We see this again in the, in, the, in the context of Jesus in the wilderness as he's being tempted. Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't fall. He doesn't run. He, he faces the temptation head on. Um, we've heard pastors said one time years ago, uh, I remember he said that the, the language that's used when uh, the enemy is tempting Jesus in Luke 4, uh, the Bible says that, that, uh, that the enemy tempted Jesus, but the language could be translated that the enemy attacked Jesus. So it's this language that helps us understand that this is an aggressor, that, that there is something that is really coming after us in this moment. And so what we see Jesus doing is not necessarily defending himself or cowering away, but he, he meets this head on and he begins to fight this temptation. And what does he use to fight? He uses the word of God. Right, And so even, even the Old Testament saints, they understood this. You remember the psalmist, what did he say? He said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? And so we understand that the word of God is alive and powerful and it cuts between the marrow of the, the spirit and the soul. We understand that the, the word of God works within us but it's important also to understand that the word of God is a weapon of warfare that is used to destroy the tactics of the enemy. It's a dismantling, a dissolving uh, a weapon of war that God has given to, for us um, to help us fight off the temptations that come our way. So, so this is what it looks like. And, and the reality is this, is that we, most of us in this room, we know how Jesus fought temptation. He used the word of God. Most of us know that he used the word of God. But the question is, for me, when is the last time I used the word of God when it came to temptation? Okay, so the applicable moment is simply this. You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, and they don't just cut you off, they flip you off, and they call you all kind of things, right? Your initial response is anger, right? It should be. You should, that should make you mad, okay? You have permission to be mad. But as Paul says, be mad and sin not. Okay, now here's the thing. Before we indulge into the anger, this is where the practical application happens, where we say, no, I'm not going to give into that. And this is what I would speak aloud, not just think it in my head, but speak it aloud, that no, I'm not going to give into my anger because I remember that Scripture says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so I'm going to choose to let vengeance be the Lord's, right? And then you just pray, go get them, Lord. You know what their tag number is, right? Let the, vengeance is my, saith the Lord. You know, so, so, so you begin to speak this, at, listen to me, oppose, and I, I'm not trying to get into this, you know, name and claim, all this kind of thing, but I'm, I'm trying to help us understand. There is something potent about when we speak the word of God. There's something that happens in the, in the atmosphere of the spirit when we speak the word of God, that does not happen when we just think the word of God, right? So, so we need to be reminded that it's okay. God has given this. Listen, Jesus didn't just think to himself, no, um, I don't want to turn these stones into bread because man doesn't live by bread alone. He didn't just think these things. The Bible says he spoke these things, right? And it had this dismantling effect right? And so, so we, we have to be intentional about applying these things as they come about. And so the, the first thing that, that we can do is we can contend, we can fight. The second thing that we can do is we can flee. We see this in the life of Joseph, 
where he is literally stripped down by a woman who is not his wife that is so aggressive with him sexually that he runs out of the house naked because she, she grabbed his clothes because she wanted um, to do things so very badly. The Apostle Paul, writing to young Timothy, this is what he says. He says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. And there are like commentators and, you know, these theologians, and they would say, well, when Paul used the word run, uh, what he really meant was avoid. Okay, I, I'll concede that. Maybe he did mean avoid. He also meant run. <laughs> Sometimes you may need to physically remove yourself from a situation, hence the word run. But we've got to be reminded of this. No temptation has overtaken you except what, that which is common to man. And listen to me. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Listen, I'm just going to say this. There are a number of strategies that we can use to avoid temptation. You know, not being around certain people, places, or things, that's a good place to start. Um, there, there are a thousand things that you can do, but, but typically they fall in one of these two categories. Either you're going to fight or you're going to flee. And listen to me, there ain't nothing wrong with fleeing, okay? I'm a, I'm a fleer, okay? I'll be fleeing. It don't bother me to flee. I'll tuck tail and run, okay? But what we have to remember is that we just have to use a strategy. Whatever that strategy is, use the strategy, right? Uh, St. Benedict, one of the early church fathers, he, he really struggled with lusting after women. He, he struggled so much to the degree that, that it's documented that if he were walking down the road and he saw a woman and began to have lustful thoughts of this woman, or if he was at home by himself and he began to think of a woman in an inappropriate way, that he would go out to this place in his property that was an enormous thorn bushel. And history says that he would throw himself into the thorn bushel and thrash around to get his mind off the lustful thoughts. Listen to me, I'm not advocating that, right? Listen, one of y'all gonna walk in on Sunday and like all gashed up and bleeding and be like, <laughs> like, ah, uh, ah. Uh. We're, we're all going to know, and that's okay. But listen to me. We will applaud you because you learn to defeat the temptation. I'm clearly not advocating for any level of self-harm. I'm just simply saying this. There are a thousand strategies that you can use. Use them. That's all I'm, that's all I'm trying to say. Because this, this reality is true. That if we fail, if we fail, to fight temptation or to flee from temptation, we will inevitably fall into temptation. We see this played out. There are so many negative examples in the Bible, which I love because this is the kindness of the Father helping us relate as a human to our broken situation. See in David with Bathsheba and Uriah, Judas, 
Peter, the list goes on and on and on. And the reality is this, is that you can look at your life, you can look at my life, you can look at the lives of all the people in this room, and you can see that truth bear out. That if we refuse, if we fail to fight or to flee, ultimately and in time we will fall. And this is what, you know what the, you know what the tragedy is? The tragedy is that so many of us fall time and time again for the same bait with the same hook. And I'm not, I'm not being judgy here. I'm talking about me and you. And what I have learned in my life, and I'm sure you have too, is that temptation or, or the sin, you know, followed by temptation, it always has a way of over-promising and under-delivering. Every time. It never fully and finally meets the need that we have. It's never as good as we thought it was. The end result is always worse than we imagined it could be, right? Uh, St. Augustine, um, one of the, the heroes of the Christian faith, he writes about when he was a young boy and uh, he and some friends, they went and uh, they were in this peach orchard, and they ran, and they were just, they were stealing peaches. They were just stealing peaches, putting them in their shirts, and just running away, giggling like a bunch of little boys. And, you know, they run, and they, they got all these peaches, and they finally, they end up in a cave where they're safe and everything. And Augustine, reflecting back on this, he says he bites into the peach, and he realizes in the moment that the peach isn't ripe, and the peach is tasteless. It has no taste. And he writes after that, he says, and so the soul fornicates. This is what he's meaning by that. He's saying that every time we give in to sinful activity, we have this image in our mind of how good the peach is going to be. The juice and the, the quenching of not only the hunger, but the thirst and the sweetness. We always have this in our minds. But ultimately what ends up happening is it always ends up being tasteless. It always ends up falling short of what we thought it would be in our minds. And the reality is is that that is what happens every single time. So the hope is simply this as we, we wrap this up. Or I guess another reality is simply this is that regardless of, of how diligent we are and how faithful we are, inevitably we are going to fall into temptation. It may be at this level, maybe the lowest levels that we struggle. It may be at a high level. It may be anything in between. But the reality is that we're all going to fall on some level into temptation. And the only thing that gives us hope is this portion in Hebrews chapter 4. I think it's in your notes here. And as I read this, I want you to really ingest this. I want it to to really seep through and saturate your soul. The writer says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Notice the word empathize. It's not sympathize. It's not a feeling. It's an identification with an activity. He has experienced the same thing that we have experienced in our weakness. But we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, 
yet he did not sin. Therefore, listen to this. This is, this is the, the soothing hope for the soul. Therefore, let us then approach God's grace, throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That is the great hope of the human condition. We are broken. We are sinful. Before Jesus, we were without hope in utter desperation. But since the cross, since the resurrection, we have a high priest that identifies with us and not only identifies and empathizes with us, but he covers us in our fallenness and restores us as his sons and daughters. That, my friends, is the great hope that Jesus is pointing us to. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight that you saw through the corridors of history and you knew exactly what we would need to pray and to understand and to focus on. And I thank you for this incredible Sermon on the Mount. I thank you for this incredible Lord's Prayer. And I thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit as we've gone through this series. And I just want to pray, Lord, that your work will continue in the days and the years and the decades to come for all of us and that your name will be honored. Thank you for your people. I bless them in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen.